You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I have my Bible open to Acts chapter 16, and this is the third time in three weeks I've asked you to open to Acts chapter 16. We're going to see another narrative here. We're going to meet another character in the story. This is the final message in the series, Lift Up Your Eyes. Now, that's not the last time you're going to hear us say, Lift Up Your Eyes, because that's the theme for the whole year. So as we lift up our eyes, we're learning that our first responsibility is to lift up our eyes vertically, because that's That's where our help comes from. Get your eyes off your finances and your problems and the hurricanes and whatever disaster you're going through and lift up your eyes. That's where the Lord tells us the help comes from. But then secondly, once we get our eyes on the Lord, we learn that we are to lift up our eyes and get our eyes on the Lord's work because vertical eyes open missional eyes. All that God is doing in the world to save sinners, He invites us into that. So we are to be missionaries who are missional, adopting the daily posture of a missionary. Are you a missionary? If you're not a missionary, you're the mission. And the missionaries are coming after you. And we have a message. It's called the gospel. We live in view with eyes wide open to the unfinished task of the great commission to get the gospel right and then to get the gospel out. That is our job. Jesus referred to our job in John 4, 35, and he used an illustration there. He said, lift up your eyes because the fields are white for harvest. So how many of you understand he was not talking about agriculture there? He was talking about our mission is to get the gospel out. But he uses this illustration. It's very important for a missionary to understand something about fruit. If you're going to be a harvester of fruit, you have to be discerning in when the right time is to pick the fruit. Do you know which state produces the most fruit in the United States? Michigan. Like, I It's like, isn't it like frozen like eight, nine months out of the year? How do you get fruit out of a state like that? But apparently that's where you grow a lot of fruit. And there are opportunities to harvest in Michigan. It's right seasons of the year. There's opportunities for us to harvest everywhere we go every day. But you got to know something about the fruit. Now, how many of you like the taste of a green sour apple? Why? I do not get it. I've never had a bite of a green apple I liked, but some people actually like this. But you understand that there are some green apples that are ready to to, to harvest and to eat. That's not what we're talking about here this morning, because the the kind of apple that really God intended for us to eat is actually um, (laughs) red apples, okay? And uh, red apples, I mean, how many of you like the taste of a red apple? Uh, now, Now we've got agreement there. So before the red apple becomes a red apple, what is it first? It's a green apple, right? And so you do not want to pick the green apple before it turns red. Jesus said you have to know something about the harvest. So as we share the gospel, as we go and communicate the good news of Jesus Christ with others, how many of you have ever attempted that? You've gulped real hard and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to open up this conversation to a conversation about the gospel and Jesus Christ, and I might even mention sin, and you were met with some resistance. 
How many of you were met even with like a punch in the face or an insult? And how could you be so rude and so insulting and you're so narrow in your thinking? And you know what you're talking to? You're talking to a green apple. Now, listen, we like to say around here, if you can't pick the apple, please don't bruise it. You see, once you realize that you are getting resistance, the posture you're to take is patience. Wait for the Lord to ripen the apple. The proper posture is not to take out your Bible and then to begin to beat the apple. That does not ripen the apple at all. It just bruises the apple. You have to wait for the Lord to ripen the apple. And sometimes it takes a little time. How many of you remember when you were a green apple? I mean, you didn't like people calling you a dirty, rotten sinner. How many of you still don't really like that? You're a green apple. So we're trying to ripen your apple a little bit here. But you, you were resistant to the truth of the good news of Jesus. You were resistant to the fact that you needed a Savior and you were on your way to hell and you needed something to divert God's wrath. And all of those things are very hard to believe until God ripens your apple. Now, how many of you could identify some things that the Lord used over time to make you aware of your need of Jesus. And some of those things maybe not so pleasant, and maybe God used some of the struggle to make you more accepting of the fact that you weren't God and you needed a Savior. So that's what the Lord does. And so if we're to harvest this field, we have to know something about discerning the color of the fruit. Now, as we get into Acts chapter 16, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. How many of you were in church last week and remember all the points and could share the illustrations and preach the message? No. So let me give you a little review. If you remember, we looked at two characters in the story. The first of them was a rich girl. Remember the rich girl? And so as we're harvesting and we're out there sharing seed, we're going to run into some rich girls. What was her name? Lydia. Remember Lydia had everything going for her. She was a seller of purple and she probably looked like a model and, uh, and she was religious but the Lord had not yet opened her heart to receive Jesus. And so God sent these missionaries and she responded and God ripened that apple and it was, that was like low hanging fruit. I mean, just all, They just had to show up and share the gospel and she repented and believed. That's a wonderful example of how the Lord uses a missionary to get the gospel to someone who needs to be saved. Now we met another girl last week and uh, she was not a rich girl she was a poor girl and what was her name now it's amazing more of you remember the name Linda than remember the name Lydia and that's not even her name we just made that up so quit saying her name was Linda who gave you that idea um No, we played around with that. We nicknamed her Linda. We don't know her name, but we we named her Linda just so we could refer to her. And she really was a a poor girl. She was enslaved. She was owned. She was being used to make money. She was filled with a demon spirit, and she could tell the future. But she was really annoying. Remember that? It even tells us that in the story. And, And... God used these missionaries to ripen that apple and get her to a better place, and she received Christ. So, we've seen the rich girl, Lydia. We've seen the poor girl, Linda. Guess who we're going to meet this week? We're going to meet Larry. Larry is the next one in the story. Okay, now we, we don't know his name. We're going to nickname him Larry, but Larry is in the story. Here it is. We're, we're picking the story up in verse 19. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, the missionaries, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. How many of you had a bad week? (laughs) Things not go so great? Anybody dragged through the mall on the way to jail? No. So I don't care what your week was like. It was not as bad as these guys. So these guys had a bad week. They're being dragged through the marketplace, falsely accused. Verse 20 says, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Now, can you just imagine Paul speaking up at that point and saying, Guilty as charged. As a matter of fact, I kind of see it as my job description as a missionary to create a little disturbance in the city. Now, I would like to suggest that that is our assignment from the Lord as a church, is to disturb the city. Granger, Mishawaka, South Bend, Niles Buchanan, Elkhart, Edwardsburg, Goshen, St. Joseph, all these, these areas here. Listen, if we're not creating some disturbance, then we're not doing our job. Now, we're not going out there to try to annoy people, but we are trying to disturb the despair and in place of it put hope. We are trying to disturb the darkness and into it shine light. That is our job. And if somehow Harvest Bible Chapel was wiped off the map, there should be something missing in this community. And so if we're doing a good job, we ought to be creating some disturbance. You ought to be creating some disturbance in your marketplace. You ought to be creating some disturbance on your team. You ought to be creating some disturbance in your schoolroom. Otherwise, you're just kind of going with the flow. So Paul and Silas, good job. Put it on the resume. resume. They're disturbing the city. Verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off, gave orders to beat them with rods. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering Larry, the jailer guy to keep them safely. So can you imagine this guy? I mean, he's not there. I don't think he's really upset at Paul and Silas. He just showed up for work. Just doing his job. You got one job. You're a corrections officer. Keep the prisoners safe. In other words, don't let them escape. That's your one job. Now, can you imagine Larry showing up for work every day, getting dressed in the morning. He's putting on blue shirts, probably has name tag right there, Larry. And uh, he's got his lunch pail with him and he's just showing up to do his job. Just collecting a paycheck, just trying to put food on the table. We're going to find out later he had a wonderful family he needed to provide for. So he's just there doing his job. So he's told to keep them safe. And so that's why we read in the next verse, verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Why did he put them in stocks? That was his job. Just doing my job. You see, Larry's the kind of guy that might be invisible to you. If you're rich, you might not even notice Larry. 
if you're poor. You might never even come in contact with Larry unless you're a criminal. Now, it's interesting to note here that Paul and Silas never would have intersected Larry's life unless God sent them to prison. Did you know that there's some missionary work that can't get done unless missionaries are willing to pay a price to be bold enough to speak into the darkness? As you're looking for red apples and running into green apples, there's five people you need to be looking for. First of all, you need to look for someone who has had an encounter with an authentic Christian. Now, I want you to notice here, Paul and Silas, they're beaten, they're bruised, they're bloody. Their feet are in stocks. It's late at night. They're probably exhausted And that's where we pick up the story, beginning in verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were griping and complaining, (laughs) crying out to God to kill Larry, the prison jailer guy. Is that what your Bible says? That's that's not what my Bible says either. Don't don't let me get away with that stuff up here, y'all. What does the Bible say they were doing? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. I wonder what they were praying. The Bible doesn't tell us what they were praying. It's all kinds of different prayers. They could have been praying that God would set them free. God, would you get us out of here? We've got so much missionary work to do. And there's so many people out there that need to hear the gospel. Could have been praying that. Or they could have been praying for people that needed to hear the gospel on the inside of that prison. They could have been praying for Larry the jailer guy. That God would set him free from the prison that he was in. And so maybe they were praying maybe they were praying prayers of thanksgiving. God, thank you for sparing our life. The fact that we've been beaten and, and we're bloody and, and we, don't, we don't know if we're going to make it another day, but thank you for the, the opportunity to share the gospel. And we count it a privilege to be treated like Jesus was treated for sharing the message that Jesus shared. Maybe they were praying that. We don't know. The second thing that they were doing, if praying wasn't astonishingly enough, is they were singing. Now, what would you have been doing? I mean, you would have been licking your wounds and cussing the jailer, and some of you would have been mad at God. Well, God thanks a lot. Here we are trying to be faithful missionaries and look at the way you treat us. They were singing. I wonder what they were singing. Were they singing, it is well with my soul? Were they singing, blessed be the name of the Lord, 10,000 reasons you give and take away. Blessed be your name. Or maybe they were singing jailbreak. Don't you think they were singing jailbreak? I'm just thinking they were singing jailbreak. Do you know what those two things did in the middle of that prison? Number one, it gave Larry and the other prisoners an opportunity to watch a Christian suffer well. You see, if you're looking for someone out there who 
the Lord would send you to to open their hearts to the gospel. Many times their ears are closed to the gospel. It is impossible for them to trust Christ because it is very hard for them to trust a Christian because they've never met a Christian who acted like Christ that endured suffering without complaining, that endured hard times without griping, without moaning and groaning that our religious liberties have been, have been violated, standing up for their rights. We don't deserve to be in here and to be expected to be treated better than everybody else. It's very hard for a green apple to trust Christ until he meets a Christian he can trust. And so all of a sudden they had a new view. Here are these guys, they've been poorly treated, they've been beaten, and yet listen to what they're doing. They're praying and they're singing. Look at what the next phrase says. And the prisoners were listening to them. So many times I overhear conversations of Christians and they're moaning and they're groaning and they're critical and they're complaining. They're upset about something that's happened to them. They're hacked off at an authority. They're asking for a better life. And I just want to walk up to them and say, shh, don't you understand? The prisoners are listening. You are giving them a picture of God, and it's not the right picture. Shh. The prisoners are listening. And so if we're going to look for red apples, we need to look for people that have had an authentic encounter with an authentic Christian. And authentic Christians realize the prisoners are listening. Mom and dad, how do you talk to one another in your home? Do you realize your children are prisoners to their flesh and they're prisoners to their appetite? They're prisoners to sin. And they're listening to see if you have any hope at all, if you have a key to unlock the prison doors. Do you understand that in the marketplace, in the schoolroom, at that party, the way you're acting, the way you're singing, the words you're using, are giving people an idea of what a relationship with God is like. And if you are not distinct, if you are not different, the prisoners have no chance of being set free because you are withholding the key to their freedom. Shh! Prisoners, live in light and in view of the fact that the prisoners are listening to us and they are watching us. Let's give them a reason to believe that we are different because we suffer well. Here's the second thing. Look for someone whose foundations are being shaken. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
Now imagine if you're a prisoner in that cell. Imagine if you're Paul and Silas. Earthquake, foundation shaken, chains fall off, prison doors open, what would you do? Thank you, Jesus. I was praying that you would send an earthquake to set me free. And now I am putting on my Nikes and I am out of here. Didn't deserve to be here anyway. See ya. That's what most of us would be doing. That's not what Paul and Silas did. Why? Do you know what they did? You see in, in the previous verse, they lifted up their eyes vertically. But then those vertical eyes gave them missional eyes to the people around them. And they had a heart for the jailer. They had a heart for the prisoners. They realized the prisoners were listening. They said, hey, what if this earthquake was not sent to set us free? What if the earthquake was sent to, send La to set Larry free? Maybe the chains and the bondage of sin and the prison of sin that he's in Maybe the Lord's doing something to get his attention. Look for someone whose foundations are being shaken. I mean, think about it. When you were a green apple, did the Lord use an earthquake financially, relationally, occupationally, a health earthquake to ripen your apple? and get you to see how needy you were for the gospel? You know who the hardest people are to actually believe the gospel? It's the people whose lives are the most steady, the most secure, and the most stable. And I'm looking into some of the eyes of people that I just described. It's very hard for you to believe you need to be set free from a prison because things are going so well for you. And it's hard for people that we love when things are going well for us to get them to understand even though temporarily you are doing great, eternally you are in trouble. And sometimes the Lord has to send an earthquake and shake those foundations of steady, secure, stable people before they open their eyes to see they actually need a Savior. That was the case of Larry. Larry showed up for work every day. He's collecting a paycheck. He's got a great family. He, everything's going great. Just average guy. Just doing my job. Just doing my job. Just doing my job. But then the Lord sends an earthquake. And he understands that God is trying to get his attention. Look for someone whose foundations are shaken. Look for someone, number three, who thinks he's out of options. Look here at verse 27. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he said, uh-oh. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You see, you have to understand the punishment for a jailer not keeping the prisoners in jail, that was not a fireable offense, that was an executable offense. I mean, he, he's, 
not only was his job done, his life was done. It was over. He was going to be executed in the morning if all of those prisoners were not there by the time the sun rose. And so all of a sudden, this guy who had a very stable, steady, secure life and occupation is ready to kill himself because he thinks he's out of options. Now, I want you to notice here, he wasn't out of options, and what he assumed was not true. If you ever meet somebody, or maybe you have even thought about killing yourself, it is probably because you are assuming some things that are not true. I mean, your view is off. What you think is reality is not reality. You think you're out of options, but you're not. And that was the case for Larry. If he had just, he might have killed himself and the prisoners would woke up in the morning, they're still in jail. It would have been a useless act. It's always a useless act to kill yourself. But in his case, what he believed was not actually true. And if you're, if you're there and, and you feel so dark and you're in a place of loneliness and hopeless and you think you're out of options, you're not out of options. It's just that you haven't seen correctly what the Lord is trying to do to get you to a better place. And so he's about to kill himself. He's fearful. He's trembling. Look down here at verse 28. It says, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. Verse 29, and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Can you see the change that's happened in this guy's life? Strong, steady, secure, stable. Now he's trembling in fear and he actually goes to seek advice from a criminal. Only the Lord can do that. The Lord was using this whole situation to ripen him to the gospel. And so he begins to ask the right question. As a matter of fact, that's the fourth point. Look for someone who's asking the right questions. So here's the question that he asked in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question. Now, the person that you're talking to may not ask that question. Now, hopefully they'll eventually ask that question. Maybe they're asking the questions like, uh, in, in a general sense, like, where did I come from? Where did we come from? Where did all this come from? If there's a creation, there's a creator. If I see design in the world, that would lead me to believe there is a designer. So who is he? What is he like? How can I know him? Those are questions that people ask. So where did I come from? Secondly, um, why am I here? Do I have purpose? Do I have meaning in life? Where am I going? What happens after this life? Those are great questions. When you find somebody asking those types of questions, or maybe you can help them understand that life really does boil down to those three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Everybody struggles at some point with those questions. But the final question they need to ask is this. How do I get out of this alive? What must I do to be saved? Now, that's the right question. 
the entire Bible is written to answer that question. Maybe a better way to phrase the question from the Bible's perspective is this. What has God done to save guys like Larry the Jailer guy? What has God done to save dirty, rotten sinners? And the entire Bible is an answer to that question. Now, it's really important to understand the perspective here. Of course, a green apple is going to ask the question, what must I do? What must I do? Show me what I got to do and I'll do it in order to be saved. Now, listen, my greatest fear is that there are people that came to church this morning, our church, other churches in our community, that in coming to church, they thought that in some way that was going to contribute something that they did to be saved. Not only did they come, they put some money in the plate, they uh, sang some songs, they prayed some prayers, and they acted better on Sunday morning than they did the rest of the time of the week. And somehow there were some things I did. God, did I do enough? That's another question people are, have I done enough to be saved? That's another way to ask this question. Now I want you to, if you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Amen. You hear that? There is nothing you can do to save yourself. I know you get that, but I'm looking at the person sitting next to you. They did not get that. Would you please turn to the person next to you? Turn to them right now and make sure they understand. Do you understand? There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Tell them right now. Do not Ignore me at this point. This person needs to hear this. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. All right, now back, look back at me. Janelle, quit looking at Todd. Right back here. All right. Now listen. Listen to this next statement. I, you've got to hear this statement. There is something you must do to be saved. He said, no, what, and you just, didn't you just, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is something you must do to be saved. You see, people get in ditches as they try to answer this question. Theologians debate this question and they get in ditches. Please hear me. There are two Errors you have to avoid. Here's the first error is to think there is something you can do to save yourself. That's ditch number one. But the other ditch is just as bad to think I don't have to do anything to be saved because there's nothing I can do to save myself. Do you understand the difference? Listen, salvation is first and foremost about what God has already done. God has already done everything He's going to do to secure salvation for those who believe. And so if you think that somehow being nice, being sweet, showing up at church, doing something good, not kicking your cat, and apologizing to your mother-in-law is going to get you any points in heaven, 
you are wrong. God is the one who must open the hearts. Do you remember Lydia? Her heart was closed and she was doing a lot of religious stuff. And yet the Lord opened her heart. God has to open blind eyes to see things that you are unable to see spiritually. That is a work of God. It is God who gives life to spiritually dead people. Listen, a lost person is as capable of saving himself as a corpse is of crawling out of a casket. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Have I made that point abundantly clear? But there's another ditch. Because some of you are sitting back there passively and it's like, well, okay, I guess God just does it all. There is something you must do to be saved. This guy asked the question, does Paul and Silas, do they look back at the guy and say, there is nothing you can do to save yourself? Is that what they said? No, they told him he had to do something. Look at verse 31. It says, and they said, believe. as a command, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Do you understand everyone in the scripture who got saved did something. You cannot be saved without doing something in response to what God has done. If you do not do something, you will not be saved. If you do the wrong thing, you will not be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We are looking for someone who is willing to trust Jesus as Lord. This word saved is a word that is probably overused in church. Um, It's not a bad word. It's just that we've made it into something it probably is not trying to convey here. Saved, it means safe. Are you safe? What must I do to be safe? Safe from what? Namely, safe from God who has been angered at my sin. How, is there anything to keep me safe from the wrath of God? Is there anything to keep me safe from the consequence of my sin? Is there anything to keep me safe from hell? Those are important questions. And the answer is believe. Now, again, when we see the word believe, the English word just doesn't communicate what the scripture is trying to communicate here. Probably a better English word would be to rely upon, depend upon, put your full trust and weight on something or someone, namely in this, this verse, the Lord Jesus. To believe. Now listen, in order to start believing, you have to stop believing something else. You see, the question is not, do you believe? I am not talking to believers and unbelievers in this room. Everybody here is a believer in something to save yourself. The question is, are you believing on the right thing? 
For those of you that are steady and secure and stable, it is really hard for you to believe that you need something else other than yourself and your money and your nice family and your religious heritage and your church membership to save you. It's really hard to stop believing that. And it creates this false sense of belief that I am right with God when you are not. That's why you need the spiritual earthquake to shake your foundations, to shake the foundations of your religious, self-made righteousness. And when God sends the earthquake, you realize you, you, you can't believe in that anymore because it's not working for you. And you must start believing in the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean you believe that He existed. History books tell us He exists. It means you believe on Him instead of yourself to save you, to make you safe before God the Father. Why? Because what Christ did on the cross was absorbed God's anger so that you could be safe from the anger of God. Are you saved? Are you safe because you have believed on the Lord Jesus? Now listen, a lot of people look at this verse and they say, well, that's, that doesn't sound too hard. Just believe on Jesus. That's not what it says. It says believe in the Lord Jesus. The word Lord is essential to salvation. I've met people that, as I've tried to talk to them about giving their lives to the Lord and being born again, they'll say to me something like this, oh, oh, that, that's not a problem. I, I, I've accepted Jesus as Savior. I just haven't accepted Him as Lord yet. What? If you were to invite me over to your house for dinner, and you were to say, we, we, we really want to invite the preacher over for dinner, but we don't want any men to come. I can't come. Why? Because you're a man. No, we want the preacher to come. No men allowed. You're, I, you don't understand. I am, I am a male preacher. They're inseparable. Do you understand? You can't just invite the parts of Jesus you want and reject the part you don't. If you say, I want him as Savior, you must say, I want him as Lord. Jesus refuses to save those he cannot command. And if you refuse him as Lord, he will refuse to save you. The only hope you have of being saved is submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When did that happen? Do you understand this happens at a point? There's a point you stop believing in yourself. There's a point you start believing in Jesus as Lord. I've told you, if you've been around for a while, um, I, I didn't grow up going to church. I got saved as a 15-year-old in 1982. And um, I had this really persistent Sunday school teacher that really wanted to see me saved. 
And so he kept calling and he kept pestering me. And, and he said, oh, Trent, this is a perfect opportunity. There is a citywide evangelistic crusade coming to our town. We're going to meet every night at the rodeo arena. It was Oklahoma. It's the best we could do. The rodeo arena. And we're all going to meet there. And, and there's going to be this. You, you, you just got to come. And so I'm like, ah, you put him off. You make excuses, you know. So it was Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. He called me on Wednesday and said, Trent, you're never going to believe what happened on, on Tuesday night. The pastor's wife got saved. Now, my first thought is, why did the preacher marry somebody that's not saved? But then I, I, I knew who this lady was. Her name was Gloria. Gloria was the sweetest, most wonderful, nicest person in the whole city. Everybody knew Gloria. And yet on Tuesday night, she realized that she believed in her sweetness to save her. She'd grown up in church, been in church all of her life, knew the gospel better than anybody, but she had never stopped believing in her religious self-made sweetness and started believing in the Lord Jesus. So he's telling me the story. He's like, I want to come. No, I'm coming. That thing. Preacher's wife getting saved. I mean, if glory is not saved, none of us are saved, you know? And it's like, <laughs> crying out loud, what's going on down there? He called me back on Thursday and he said, you're never going to believe what happened on Wednesday night. The youth pastor got saved. The youth pastor? Why is the church hiring a lost youth pastor? I mean, they should, that at least should be on the, the job requirements that you should hire a saved youth pastor. I was like, yeah, he was, he, he was doing the same thing. I mean, he, he, he's trusting in his ministry and his Bible knowledge and his great effectiveness and his persuasive speech. But he'd never surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord. You want to come? Uh-huh, I'm coming to that thing. Finally, he wore me down. Saturday night, I went, and I got saved. Now, the next morning, I was baptized. Along with 71 other people in our church who had to admit we'd been trusting ourselves to save us. We'd never trusted Christ as Lord. What, are the, what was the evidence of this guy getting saved? Look at it down here. In, in, he says in, in, in verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And so he, he brought these guys to his house. I'm like, you got to listen to this guy. This, this guy's going to tell you something I, I'm not able to tell you. In verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Who had caused the wounds? He had. One of the evidences is that Christ is Lord is you are willing to go back and repair the damage you have caused by your sin. The wounds that were opened, you want to go back and heal. It was evidence that Christ was now Lord. It says next that he was baptized. He, he, he didn't have this private thing going on between him and Jesus. He wanted the world to know publicly, I'm with that guy. He is my new Lord. He's my new master. He's my new boss. And, and he and all of his family. 
Never underestimate the influence of a changed father, a changed husband to change the direction of his family. Men, do you understand how powerful your influence is? Do you understand that once there is change in your life and there's a humility to say, you know what, I'm tired of acting so strong and stable and secure. I've had a spiritual earthquake. I need something other than myself to save me. It's Jesus. Would you come with me? You see, once he lifted up his eyes to the Lord, he immediately lifted his eyes to his family and he became a missionary to his family. It goes on in verse 34. He brought them up to his house and set food before him and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Listen, an hour ago this guy was suicidal. Now he has a holy happiness. And he's singing and praising God with Paul and Silas. Has that kind of change happened to you? The the reverberations from what happened to me and those other people in that week have reached in places all over the world, in Asia and remote parts of America, like Granger, Indiana. Are you safe? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Nobody's looking around. For some of you, this message was to get your eyes on those that need the gospel. They're waiting on a missionary to come and share with them. For others of you, the reality is you walked in here as a green apple. My prayer is you're going to walk out of here as a red one. Are you like Larry? Just doing your job, responsible, faithful. Have you ever had your foundation shaken? so that you saw your sin, your need for Christ. Maybe you've been religious. Maybe you've said you've been saved, but the reality is you've never trusted Christ as Lord. There's never been changes like this guy happen in your life. Why don't we change that today? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Respond to what God has done. Embrace Christ for forgiveness of sin. Why don't you open up your heart right now and just say, Lord, I choose to stop believing in my self-righteousness and start believing in your sacrificial atoning death on the cross for me. Help me never to be ashamed of you if you just prayed that prayer then in just a moment we're going to stand and sing the pastors are here we would love to receive you take some boldness and courage and just leave that seat where you're at just shove people out of the way they'll they'll rejoice along with you why don't you make your way down to this aisle to one of these pastors and just say I need to be saved or "I, I think I just got saved We'll talk to you about baptism. We'll talk to you about how to take your next step. We have a new believers kit that we'd love to give you. Don't miss the moment to declare your faith publicly. 
Father, I pray that you would open hearts, open eyes, grant the faith to believe. For many, give them the courage to step out and make it public. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing. You come if you need to come.